Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Brennan. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter, and we have got a great guest lined up for the show. Friend of the show, Clark Brooks. You probably know him best as the SEC Stat Cat, talking the top returning quarterbacks and running backs in the SEC. A very, very, very in-depth conversation with Clark. We'll get to that in just a minute, but we've actually, you know, had a little bit of news this week and uh, potentially some big news here at Florida and LSU, particularly with uh, spring football right around the corner. I believe Florida's, they're about a week away from starting spring practice, so we'll get to that in just a second, but we are recording here late February, February 23rd to be exact. This is the earliest that I can ever recall that these game of the year point spreads are up. And these are courtesy of FanDuel. I don't know what the limits are quite on these. Usually these come out in, I want to say maybe like May or June. That's kind of when we'll get more and more of these to really start filtering in. But we've got some interesting ones here featuring many SEC teams. So I just do a little brief rundown of the ones that have debuted on FanDuel. These are going to change. But again, this is the best time to bet on these. Again, I don't know what the limits are. You'll have to go to FanDuel for yourself, not a sponsor or anything, and check them out. But these lines, everyone I'm listing here, will probably shift, and some of them potentially shift significantly from when they open. So let's get into it right here, week one. We got two games to keep an eye on. South Carolina versus North Carolina in Charlotte. I think most people would assume the Gamecocks are going to be favored in that game with all the momentum at the tail end of the season, getting their quarterback, their star receiver back. But no, it's North Carolina that debuted as a point-and-a-half favorite. According to FanDuel, this game's in Charlotte. can never tell what you're going to get out of the Gamecocks right out the gate. They have struggled under Shane Beamer early in the season. But I still wouldn't favor North Carolina in this matchup. So this may be an opportunity to take advantage of these early spreads. I'd bet South Carolina getting points. That's a smart bet right there. This other one, same deal. LSU versus Florida State in the opener. It is in Orlando, so a little bit of a home field advantage for Florida State, I have to imagine. But they have Florida State favored over the defending SEC West champions by just a point. So really just a toss-up type game. But hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I think all this FSU hype, I think it's getting out of control. Having them favored over LSU. This is probably a top 10 preseason showdown. LSU deserves top 10 billing. Florida State, I ain't buying it. So again, I tend to favor LSU in this matchup. How about this one? This will be an SEC matchup soon enough. Not this season, though. Texas at Alabama. Crimson Tide favored by eight and a half points over the Longhorns. That feels about right. We'll have to see if uh, Sarkeesian can get this team up to snuff here. I know they gave Alabama a great game last season. Nearly knocked off the Crimson Tide, but that's an interesting line. Texas A&M favored 
by four and a half at, on the road at Miami. That's another interesting line considering A&M, the struggles they had, but Miami was just as bad in a weaker league. So I get it. A&M was kind of surprised they'd be a four and a half point favorite on the road against Miami, but not a stunning development there. This one is pretty surprising given the history of these two. Tennessee on the road at Florida. Vols favored by six and a half points. Nearly a touchdown favorite in Gainesville. Boy, I ain't touching that one. Uh, Florida, hell, even last year, they, they made it close at the end. The game was not really that competitive till the very end, but that's interesting. We got another Florida game here. Georgia versus Florida in Jacksonville, of course. Massive spread, biggest spread on the board here. Georgia favored by 17 and a half points in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Got to hope the game's a little bit more competitive than that. LSU at Alabama. Alabama favored by eight and a half in that showdown, a rematch from last year, LSU winning. Georgia at Tennessee. Georgia favored by seven and a half. Kind of surprised that it's that low. I'd probably bet up Georgia on that one. And then I know this is not technically an SEC game, but I'm counting them. They're in the family now. Texas, Oklahoma playing at the Texas State Fair, the Longhorns. Favored by five points. So those are all the games that FanDuel currently has listed with a point spread. Get over there. Again, not a sponsor or anything, but this is an opportunity to grab some value in some of these before the line shift, which I guarantee is going to happen with the, the vast majority of these, especially as we get closer and closer to kickoff. Now, I referenced this in the opening real quick. Florida. Man, you thought it was a roster reset for Billy Napier and company. Now it's a coaching reset. Three coaches have left in the last couple of hours here from Billy Napier's initial staff here, starting most significant, the defensive coordinator, Patrick Toney. It's not to say that uh, I don't know if this will truly be a loss because the Florida defense was terrible. Some people were surprised Billy Napier didn't fire this guy outright, but he has gotten a job with the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL. So new defensive coordinator in Gainesville will be none other than former Southern Miss defensive coordinator Austin Armstrong, who had been hired by Nick Saban to be the new Alabama linebackers coach and co-defensive coordinator. Of course, that's the co, that's just in the title, basically saying you cannot leave unless you go full-time defensive coordinator somewhere, and that's what's happening here in Gainesville. So Florida already had one of the youngest, if not the youngest, defensive coordinator in the SEC. Tony was in his, I think he was like 32. This Austin Armstrong's 29. Little baby face guy down there. But I have heard initial buzz down there. Alabama was very excited to bring Austin Armstrong on the Nick Saban staff. Coach up the linebackers is a loss for the Crimson Tide, no doubt. It's going to be interesting to see. I've, I've heard some mixed things about him being promoted as a defensive coordinator full-time for the Florida Gators. He worked previously with Billy Napier down there in Louisiana, so there's familiarity. And I wonder how much of this has to do with the fact, referenced it earlier, Florida's got spring football coming up right around the corner. So you 
certainly couldn't go into that without having a defensive coordinator. You may remember early in the week we discussed, you know, the biggest questions for each of these SEC teams. My biggest one for Florida was the defense. And if it was going to turn the corner under Patrick Tony, obviously we won't can't say that now. So the, the biggest question, now we have a new coordinator. I don't want to say a completely new playbook, but the players are going to be learning something different, different scheme, different terminology, something under Austin Armstrong, who at Southern Miss, his defenses were among the best in the country when, you, when you're talking havoc plays, lot, tackles for loss, forcing turnovers, things of that nature. But Dave Bartu, guy we reference all the time here, CFB Matrix, you know, this – was not an impressive hire according to his metrics. I believe he he had Southern Miss as the 71st best scoring efficiency defense in the country. And Adam McClintock, the CFB professor, we've referenced his play caller rankings time and time again. Anytime there's a coordinator change, Austin Armstrong ranked 64th in the country, adjusted for roster talent, which is critical adjusting for the talent he had to work with at Southern Miss going against the talent they faced year in, year out. So not a grand slam by any means, but potentially a rising up-and-comer. Who knows? This Austin Armstrong could be a hell of a coach, and the fact that Nick Saban brought him on, you got to believe that uh, you know he's got an outstanding reputation, particularly on the defensive side of the football. So there is reason for optimism if you're Florida Gators, but then again – if this guy was that great, Nick Saban had the opportunity to name him as defensive coordinator. He went and got Kevin Steele, of course, which he's got a longer track record in not only in college football, but obviously the SEC than Austin Armstrong. So, again, maybe that's not a fair comparison. Kevin Steele's work for Nick Saban. I think this is his third tour of duty down there in Tuscaloosa. So I get it, but that's going to be interesting to see. The tight ends coach, William Pigler, he also left for the NFL. And then another one, receivers coach, Kerry Colbert, who was at Southern Cal before coming to Florida, just his one year there. He's making over half a million dollars to be the receivers coach at Florida. He has now jumped, I believe, to the Denver Broncos. And the Gators just signed three four-star receivers, two of them already on campus as early enrollees. So, it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. But, you know, the way that the roster has turned over in Gainesville, it was almost like a, a year zero there for Billy Napier. Now he's having to replace three full-time staff members going into year two with spring practice a week or so away. Man, I, I think if nothing else, I'm not sitting here saying that Florida's going to have an awful year because they lost a coordinator that wasn't that good last year. That doesn't make any sense. But maybe reset expectations a little because we all know the roster turnover, now the coaching turnover at a pivotal time. I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know what the expectations should be for Billy Napier's Florida Gators. And after the way last season ended, man, there, there's reason for doubt. But, again, I think we got to give this guy time but that's hard to do when uh, your key rival is dominating college football and teams like Tennessee, South Carolina, division rivals, at least for one more season, seemingly on the rise. Now, the other one real quick, LSU. You know, I referenced that uh, earlier 
show we did this week questioning biggest concerns coach you know things we'd ask at SEC media days for LSU it was special teams Brian Polian was a disaster I thought as special teams coordinator <laughs> what's the confidence that gets fixed well I think we come to find out that uh you know Brian Kelly wasn't too happy either because Brian Polian no longer the special teams coordinator the timing of this very interesting he is Brian Polian has shifted to a GM role off the field we'll see you know what comes of that but uh yeah special teams opening again I don't know why they waited this point in time to to make this decision but it is potentially great news for LSU because the special teams can't get any worse than it was last year and I think it's kind of a damning indictment here that former head coach longtime coordinator Brian Polian has been with Brian Kelly a long, long time. Now he's shifted to an off-the-field role. And I've heard some rumblings they were kind of waiting for him to land another job so they wouldn't have to fire him. And they clearly they didn't fire him. They just reassigned him off the field. But And who, who knows? This GM role, maybe this will serve them well. I know several teams in the SEC and across the country have these GMs. And with the NIL, with the transfer portal, those positions becoming more and more valuable to programs. This could be a genius move for Brian Kelly. If if nothing else, I think it's a great move getting him off of, off the field as a special teams coordinator because he clearly didn't do a good job for the Tigers last season. But that's enough of me just sitting here talking. Let's kick it over to our interview with Clark Brooks, the SEC stat cat. This guy does his homework well researched i mean you should see this data that he's sent over to me um it makes my head spin just looking at it all so let's kick it over to sec stat cat all right we're pleased to be once again joined by friend of the show clark brooks you know him best as the sec stat cat give him a follow at sec underscore stat cat you can find a, a link to that in the show notes and of course he works for on three sports Clark, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Same way. It's, my, it's always an honor to talk ball with you. And, man, I, I just had to have you on because I know over there at On3, you know, this is what we all do in the offseason, but the effort, the time, the energy that you put into this, you're not just throwing stuff against the wall. So I, I value your opinion especially, of course, when it comes to the SEC over, uh, you know, the vast majority of people like myself putting these lists together. So top 10 returners in the SEC, you, you've kind of been formulating that. I want to focus the conversation on quarterbacks and running backs on this episode. Uh, but before we get into it, though, I mean, how can you just briefly go into, uh, you know, your metrics for this and how much time and, and effort you really do put into these lists? Well, yeah, I mean, it, there's a many ways to skin a cat, as they like to say. For me, StatCat, I like the I like to marry the good old-fashioned eye test with dependable metrics. So, no, all stats aren't created the same. Yards, volume stats, that can be easily distorted by uh, volume and usage rates and all those types of other things that aren't standardized from team to team, from situation to situation. So you have to look at a little bit more play-to-play -play efficiency. So I always like impactful players, touchdowns, conversions, 
plays that normal players can't make. So if you're a wide receiver and if you're racing an interception with a contested catch or uh, racing right on by somebody in an open field and turning a 10-yard gain into a 40-yard touchdown, those are things that obviously pop on tape and things that absolutely stand out on the stat sheet as well. But like for defenders, I also like things that can disrupt. You know, um, with defenders basically being obstacles in space, you're all about you're all about measuring how those guys can make it difficult on the offense. If you're a defensive lineman, how much havoc are you getting? Are you getting in the backfield? Are you making two guys account for you freeing up another one of your teammates? How often are you getting a tackle for a loss? How often are you getting a pressure per your pass rush opportunities? Because, you know, again, you can rack up a lot of pass rush steps over, uh, 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 I'm sorry, you should rack up a lot of pressures over a thousand pass rush snaps. But if you're not doing it at like a, a fairly efficient rate compared to your peers, who really cares, right? So it's all about stabilizing and standardizing things across a lot of different situations, which involves numbers, a lot of study, as you mentioned, with with film, and of course, knowing what they're doing schematically. Because if you look at somebody in Tennessee's offense, they pop a little bit easier than if you're watching somebody in Kentucky's offense, just because of the order of operations and how they facilitated things. So it's about marrying a whole lot of different aspects and trying to spit out one big digestible number at the end of the day, because, you know, with each different position having different metrics, it can get a little messy, but everyone can just say, oh, it's like a Madden rating. He's a 99. It's a lot more understandable and easier to uh, talk about. So let's start with the quarterbacks, Clark. I know we originally touched base a couple weeks ago, and you said um, even the list you put out then needed to be updated. So I'm working with an outdated list here. I'm curious to hear who you have right now as the top returning quarterback in the SEC. Top returning quarterback in the SEC. uh, It's a name that's probably going to bring a smile to your face. It's K.J. Jefferson. Um, you know, uh, he is a absolute hoss in the run game. There's no doubt about it, whether it is um, going empty and they're doing kind of split zone action or if they're doing quarterback counters, kind of gap scheme north and south things to get the ball in his hands. Uh, but one thing that I can ignore, and there is kind of um, not a whole lot of separation between one, two, three, four in the conference. But, you know, I do give him the edge because of his designed rushing ability. Um, and he also returns with the SEC's best catchable pass rate. So, you know, not every pass is gauged the same in my charting system. An accurate pass is where you're hitting a guy in stride with minimal adjustments where he doesn't have to do anything to negate the max, the optimization of the route, you know, having to stop, dive, or anything like that where you can get a lot more yards after the catch. He was one of the better ones at giving his guys an opportunity to actually catch it. Pinpoint accuracy, like I just mentioned, though, he was below average. So there is some areas of opportunity for him to uh, improve his game. Of course, in 2021, under Kendall Bryles tutelage, he led the SEC in deep pass rate. That's very sexy. But the problem is he's losing Kendall Bryles this offseason. So how is he going to manage Dan Enos? is uh, guidance over Kendall Bryles, who runs a very quarterback-friendly scheme. Like Tennessee, that super spread, Baylor spread type of offense. That's all about um, pace, space and putting asses in grass. So um, he's absolutely number one. I would say number two is Jaden Daniels. Jaden Daniels, um, he is his best self, no doubt about it, when he is scrambling to space, to space. He still takes an awful lot of sacks. According to my charting metrics, um, three quarterbacks were in the major danger zone in sack-to-pressure ratio. Will Levis, which has drawn a lot of criticism this draft season for his propensity to take sacks. Hendon Hooker 
who is a very much risk adverse in terms of throwing downfield, but you know, he himself was a fairly good scrambler. And then Jaden Daniels. So while Jaden Daniels is really good on zone read keeps and running to space when there's no one there, when everyone is just turning their backs to him, as a design runner, as a sack eraser, not quite there. Even though his West Coast operation really is, you know, safe. You know, we saw during parts of last year where Brian Kelly was almost begging him to throw more downfield, to almost like dare him to throw interceptions. And, you know, when we when we saw Garrett Nussmeier get in there where he had that kind of a risky style of play, that yellow style of play, it really did elevate that offense. You can really see how there is area of opportunity for him as well. Even though, yeah, he is very accurate. He's, I think he has the top returning accuracy figure in terms of on-target passes. His operation was just short. And if he's just not as a dangerous downfield thrower with someone like Malik Neighbors, wide receiver two in the SEC, or wide receiver one, depending on who you ask. I have an Ian Smith slightly ahead just because of his um, all-encompassing game, his return game, his you know stuff in the backfield that Jimbo Fisher kind of likes to do. But very, very good situation for Jaden Daniels there. And you know, bringing back a pretty proven line, I think, should maybe help him be a little bit more comfortable this year. You know, get the ball out quick because like Hendon Hooker, sometimes he held the ball on, uh, held the ball a beat too long when someone was potentially open downfield and he just didn't see him. Scouts aren't going to like that. And of course, Brian Kelly's certainly not going to like that. So that's one area of opportunity for him in addition to improving his downfield aggressiveness. And then we have a newcomer. Devin Leary. Now, Clark, Devin Leary's come off an awful season, or not an awful season, but a fairly mediocre, forgettable season before his injury. Well, two years ago, he had one of the top touchdown interception ratios in the nation when I charted him against his five hardest opponents. His accuracy tracked to be one of the top three in the SEC. He can attack all levels of the field. His issue, though... He's kind of a slight build. He's not like Will Levis. He's not 6'4". He's more 6'1", 6'2". So if you're throwing towards the middle of the field, his vision could be a little bit more impaired than Will Levis, which could mean, like we mentioned with these other quarterbacks, holding the beat, too, uh, holding on to the ball a beat too long, or what he did during his uh, scouting tapes against his 10 hardest opponents last two years, sale passes. And you don't want to leave your guy high and dry over the middle because even when we saw with Levis, if you're a little bit behind with UK's young um, developing wide receiver core, caroms, and things slightly off the mark can lead to interceptions, which uh, for Kentucky's modus operandi, that is just absolutely devastating. They run, they don't run a lot of plays. They don't lean into the explosive play battle. They're all about time of possession. And when you're giving opponents extra possessions, that is absolutely detrimental. But because of how he can move, how he is going to be paired with Liam Combe, how um, Dane Key and Barry and Brown are going to move in that year too, and how he is going to basically fall into a scheme that ran a decent amount of the staples he ran at NC State. So we're talking about like tray sets, Three by one, verts, shock, inverted stick, all curls, shallow, stuff like that. Kind of uh, things that were sprinkled in when UK was under Liam Combe in 2021. And they were kind of faded this last season under Rich Scangarillo. But because of the environment and um, just the overall experience of him attacking at all levels of the field accurately, I really like him to be a top three passer entering this upcoming season. Now, let me, let me ask you something, Clark. Like I said, I'm, I'm working with a little bit, uh, a list that you, you've updated your own, so I, I may be incorrect here, but you, no you mentioned uh, Garrett Nussmeyer there, and on the list I have, you don't have him as top 10, and, and maybe that's just due to uh, you know lack of volume of actually grading him, but you got some guys on the list I'm looking at that, that fit that mold that don't have a, a ton of snaps 
Um, where, where would you put Garrett Nussmeyer in here? And, and I'm certainly not suggesting that LSU should go with Garrett Nussmeyer, but there's reason to believe he may be, you know, like you said, raises the ceiling of that offense. So it, it wouldn't be a stunner either if he's a starting quarterback. How, how do you see him in your, in your model there? He is a hold right now. I, I am ready to boost him up. They give him like a 92, 93 grade if he is a starter or if he enters the transfer portal, which I am not ruling out. I'm sure Auburn is absolutely uh, drooling at the uh, the potential that they can have if they get him or someone like Jackson Dart in their offense. So I, I think we're going to see a couple more transfers after the spring period. I'm not going to rule him out, but that's why I left him out just because Jaden Daniels is just so entrenched at the starter position at this time but look i can't deny his uh playmaking um and to to speak to his yolo style of play no other sec quarterback last year was both top five in interceptable pass rate and explosive pass rate than garrett nussmeyer while leading the sec with a i think only hinden hooker had a higher average depth of target so he wasn't just rinky rinky dinking and he was really trying to stretch the field so it's really um an attractive style of play when uh, you're coming from someone like me who's looking across the entire conference and everyone's trying to do these these RPOs, horizontal spacing concepts, and you get a guy like him who would just come in and just whew, really uh, get your eyeballs popping. Kind of like the guy down there in Knoxville who might be staring there, Mike. What do you think about old Joe Milton? <laughs> Bazooka Joe, we call him down here in this state. I, mean, I love that nickname. He's, I love that He's going to win two Heismans this year. He's got that strong an arm, but... Uh, no, I'm I'm not sold on him. I gotta be honest with you, but I I think, given what we saw against Clemson, the progression that he made from from 2021 when he came out the gate, he looked significantly mm-hmm. better. But again, that was a bowl game. Those are oddities. Clemson was down some guys, but uh, p- particularly his efficiency in the red zone stood out to me to where it, it gives me confidence that Joe Milton, uh, the offense is not going to take a, a, a huge step back, in my opinion, even if he's not hand and hooker caliber and, and expecting him to be that, I, I think would be unrealistic for, for most of all fans. Oh, of course. I mean, I mean, Hendon Hooker had one of the best clips in my records at throwing like interceptable passes, you know, not throwing it into harm's way. Um, obviously when you're throwing more errant and off target passes, that tends to go up and that, tends to kind of be Joe Milton's game right now but with the weapons they have I mean look squirrel squirrel white if I can say his name correctly um led the uh led college football last year in yards per route run that is the premier receiver efficiency metric um it was over four yards that's insane um if he's going to be the the Jalen Hyatt role from the slot I mean the, the sky's the limit for him. And then when you're thinking of someone like Dante Thornton, who's coming from Oregon through the transfer portal, 6'5", he has the build to potentially be a Cedric Tillman 2.0 if he can put some mass on his frame. And you're bringing back Brew McCoy, who's a bulldog himself at the X position, at the X wide receiver position on the far right of the formation. So he has a lot of weapons. Uh, while the offensive line is going to lose some pieces, while the running backs themselves don't necessarily do it for me, they're, they're, it's very much a committee type of system. Um, I think Josh Heupel has earned the benefit of the doubt looking at like kind of the mid passers he had at UCF. I'm not the biggest uh, Dylan Gabriel fan. I think he underthrows passes a whole lot, but just how he can recognize when a defense is vulnerable on the back end. And when he's able to take a shot, there's no one skill set you would like better than someone who can throw it 50 yards downfield and give this guy an opportunity to come down with it. Sure. Yes. Like I said, Raw accuracy still very much needs to be improved. His lower body mechanics need to be a little bit more in sync 
But with what he is right now, there's no reason to believe that Tennessee cannot continue to be one of the top offenses in the SEC. Now, you're very high, obviously, on Devin Leary, Kentucky's presumed starting quarterback. And people that I respect, they said he was the best quarterback in the transfer portal. Um, so I, I'm not calling yet out, out here, but number three in the SEC, that's that's going to be rich for a lot of people. Uh, I, I know we're not particularly deep in the SEC, but and, – and you said it yourself. You know, we can't just compare him to Will Levis because they're different players. But mm-hmm. when Will Levis came to Kentucky – he had more rushing attempts at Penn State than he had passing attempts. Say what you want about Will Levis. He's probably looks like he's going to be a top 10 pick in the draft. He stabilized Kentucky at that position. They won 10 games his first season. Having said all that with Liam Cohen back with the weapons he'll have to work with, would it be stunning at all if Devin Leary, by the end of the season, is the SEC's best uh, quarterback? I don't think it's stunning because, again, like I really do value accuracy. And he has a track record of throwing an accurate ball. Uh, And Liam Cohen's going to try, in theory, give him opportunities to attack space. Kentucky um, under Rick Angarello, so you want to think more Kyle Shanahan. So that's more flood-based patterns as opposed to kind of like – and stick patterns as opposed to kind of vertical stuff that are like deep crosses with overtop posts, which was a very – noticeable staple under the Rams for many, many years and still kind of is with uh, Sean McVay there. So I think with how the tutelage is and his skill set, he's going to be maximized very, very well. Because again, if he's not running for his life, and that is the big caveat with Kentucky, how's that offensive line going to hold up? They are bringing in a transfer from Mac. And last time I checked, um, the SEC defensive lines are a little bit more stout than things found in the middle of the country. So um, I don't know how that's going to go. Um, so he obviously was not the same guy when things broke down last year and he had to operate under pressure and be a sack eraser. That's just not his game. He has to be a pre-snap processor, get the ball out quick, and attack space. Now, I think he can do that. I absolutely have no doubt in my mind. There's a reason I have him number three. But I I am not without my reservations that um, it could definitely hit a snag just because of the lineup front. His size is not necessarily the best at dealing with that and he has a track record for his accuracy to fall off a cliff in those situations now two guys you haven't referenced yet uh will rogers who i think you affectionately refer to as check down charlie he's he's in mm-hmm. a more of an explosive passing attack system now under kevin barbay so i'm interested to see where you got him and i can hear the angry typing now from columbia south carolina uh, with spencer rattler not yet named uh where do you have those two I still really like Spencer Rattler's game. This time last year, I had him as the top non-five-star quarterback. So, like, if if you had a great week one, you're a five-star. I think you're going to be a first-round talent. But as we saw, some of the trepidations that he came into the league with kind of maintained. Like, he himself became a check-down Charlie um, his second starting year at Oklahoma and started the year as such. Are you ready for this stat, Mike? So, the first, up until the Tennessee game, um, only 10% of his passes – Traveled beyond 20 yards downfield. One out of 10 passes. Do you know what it was the final three games of the season? 23%. (laughs) It more than doubled. And um, while I mentioned the turnover battle earlier, no single battle has more correlated to wins and losses in SEC football the last half decade than winning the explosive play battle. And of course, explosive passes on average tend to get tend to gain more than explosive runs. And so when you're just leaning into that style of play and you're giving yourself more opportunities, guess what? You can beat one of the best teams in the country. Guess what? You can upset 
Clemson, guess what? You can uh, keep uh, Notre Dame on the ropes for most of the game until you figured out you couldn't run the ball. But um, that is one thing I have my eye on. It's a new play caller. So how much was that just being, okay, it's the end of the year, YOLO ball, I got to put I got to put my arm on tape as, uh, oh gosh, what was uh, Eli Manning's doppelganger that he did at Penn State? Was it like Chad Power? Whatever he said, like, gotta get the arm on tape. Gotta get the arm on tape. I don't know if he was going Chad Power mode or not, but um, he was a completely. That's what his style of play was. What I wanted to see the entire season. Yes, he's going to throw interceptable passes. That is just who he is. But he's got, he's got arm talent that he can make throws that no one can. Even in week one, he's rolling right. He throws the ball like forty yards downfield on the money. You can't teach that. So yes, I just need to see a little bit more. Um, consistency because like when you look at the things that South Carolina did with the check down Charlie approach to pad his down to down accuracy and trying to avoid interceptable passes. Well, his raw accuracy was 66%. It was one of the better ones in the conference. But when you strip away screens, RPOs, and when you're looking at things like 10 yards downfield, or, or I'm sorry, when you're just looking at drop back passes without screens and RPOs in there, he's much closer to average, even though his 10 plus yard accuracy, the thing that I really like, was top three throughout the entire season last year. Not not even towards the end of the year. It was consistent. So leaning into that, giving him more downfield, game-changing type of throws, I think would really behoove Daryl Loggins to pursue. Because, you know, he's coming from that super spread offense in Arkansas, and there is a little bit of question, what exactly are they going to do? Are they going to do um, some of those slide RPOs underneath? Are they going to keep it more bubble-oriented um, with Wells on the perimeter, trying to get him the ball in space? How are they going to use their new five-star Harbor? Are they going to get involved in that, in, in that uh, type of orientation and that type of approach? But for me, it's just how can they get the better version of him, get the best version of out of him by giving him downfield opportunities because I do think they have the receiving core to get open downfield and do damage not only against Tennessee's sack ass sec sorry ass secondary but against other people as well. <laughs> so so where do you have Mississippi State's favorite son Will Rogers? Will Rogers um he is right up uh right under Mr. Uh, Rattler. So and that's just because I wait and see. How is he going to react without Mike Leach being his his captain? I mean, uh, I'm kind of in the middle. You know, I'm getting pulled a thousand different ways with the updates, with the transfer rankings and the impact rankings. But when I was doing my scheme review for the last flight of the air raid, um, there were some things that were kind of regressing and kind of concerned me. And some of that was downfield, uh, like 20 plus yard completions, accuracy, usage he was much more you know take what the defense gave him Mike Leach was less inclined to run patterns that I think unlocked downfield potential because a lot of what the air raid patterns are about are seven yards and in and if the defense is peaking then you can throw over top there's not a whole lot of uh double moves or um kind of gadgetry innate in that scheme but there are elements like those fake screens those wheel stuff that you know you're you're bluff blocking and you're running up the seam those things fell off a cliff skipper sail thumb so these are like bend back crosses we saw this in the super bowl so think uh kelsey to uh, mahomes of course there's a lot of examples in that play where he was running across the field like on a cross route he stopped and then he was breaking back towards the sideline that's thumb, and that's great because if you're thinking of how the defense is going to react to that on the back end, you either have to stay back or allow a completion. If you want to cap it or take it away, 
you have to overcut it. So if you're coming down to overcut it and he's going to break the other way, there's going to be a natural void there. So again, when you run wide cross on one out of 10 plays, when you're setting up that weak flood action, it would behoove you to run that stuff a little bit more, especially because um, by, by rate, you were the least explosive passing offense in the SEC. The air raid became a ball control offense. So I can't say a ball control game manager is, you know, special. Right. But if you say, you know, there is a lot of um, reputation with the new play caller's ability to get explosive plays, it's just, okay, how can you get it out of them? Are you going to get it through Yak stuff? Are you going to, like, Spencer Rattler goad him to take more downfield shots and be a little bit more aggressive version of himself? It's more wait and see type of him. Now, I don't think you're going to get much debate when you're talking the top four quarterbacks. You, yeah. you could throw in Larry, the top five. Um, so now is when you really get kind of some, some I don't want to say guesswork, but a, a lot of fans, it's going to be guesswork. Who do you have yeah. as, as the next tier quarterbacks in the SEC? Next would be Carson Beck. And it's just because of the area of opportunity around him. Look, you're bringing in two top tier transfers in Rob Raw Thomas, who was the de facto deep thread, I would say, for Mississippi State's rinky-dinky offense at the ex-receiver position. And then you're bringing in the guy who had the second most deep receiving yards only behind Jalen Hyatt this year and Dominic Lovett, despite the fact, you know who was throwing to him? Brady Cook. He was bottom five in deep accuracy and 10-plus yard downfield accuracy. So um, he had that going against him, and despite that, he still hauled in a lot of deep yards. So if you're bringing in a fantastic unit up front, you know, Xavier Truss, Sam Pran and Mims. Yes, Marius Mims. Yeah. And and you're bringing in a Marius Mims, a fantastic bookend himself, who's, you know, you got to replace Broderick Jones and McClendon. But gosh, if there's anyone to do it at Marius Mims, he's absolutely high in my book. So, you know, he, I have him as like a, a day two grade, a high day two grade right now. And, you know, he's really has very little starting experience, but him playing as a reserve really teases high upside. And of course, you're bringing back the SEC's best overall player to have at your side in Brock Bowers. So like I said, you know, I'm in the middle of drawing up schemes and I'm in, I'm doing Georgia's run stuff right now. Dude, Pops on tape even there. He's knocking Harold Perkins, who's a defensive dynamo, out of position. He's acting as a lead blocker on counter. He's watching, he's catching deflected wheel patterns. What can Brock Bowers do? And uh, I know, yeah, Darnell Wall Washington is going to be um, surely missed, but when you're elevating Oscar Delp, I mean, whoo, boo, hoo, I, I don't feel any uh, recompense for Mr. Carson Beck. I think he should absolutely slide in and you now, even though Todd Monken's not going to be there, and even though I do think Mike Bobo's best days are behind him, I do think there's going to be a hell of a lot of content, a whole lot of um, carryover from the previous operation, and not a whole lot of waves. I think it's going to be kind of business as usual. We're going to have a balanced approach, balanced run in terms of zone and gap schemes, and in terms of run pass type of stuff with a high elements of screens, RPOs and uh, drop back play action because you know i like to mention that is kind of a caveat when you're elevate when you're trying to evaluate the super sped quarterback so like think of like kind of the scrutiny that matt corral got last year with all those tap passes and operating in uh rpo heavy type of scheme under lane kiffin well outside of the super spread guys no other sec -er had a higher percentage of screens rpos drop back play actions than mr Stetson bennett so you tell me if he was game manager or not mike so that seems like his game manager to me 
Sure, he got a lot of results. He's going to be a freaking legend. His car dealership's going to make buku bucks one day. But um, it's it's just where the way everything is built down there, they could slide in a very mediocre type of talent and still get a lot of results. So I still think Carson Beck is going to be a draftable person at the end of the day. It's just short term. I think he's still going to be that next guy right after um, Rodgers as a head of um, whatever Alabama quarterback they decide to throw out there at this point in time. And of course, like we mentioned, if Nussmeyer transfers in somewhere or Jackson Dart transfers in somewhere, we're boom. There we have our next quarterback because it looks like neither is going to be a starter. It looks like it's going to be Mr. Oklahoma State's Spencer Sanders. He's the next guy up. Um, and it's only because, you know, he's an old guy. He kind of has a propensity to put the ball in the harm's way a little, a little bit. It is going to be a new system. I mean, Ole Miss is bringing in a lot of new faces. So, like, they got to get chemistry going this spring. So, um, I think it's going to be a slower start. But by the end of the year, I think he could leapfrog some people. But I think Spencer Sanders, just where we have him in the top 25 in the transfer portal and his um, his track record of just being a, you know, a fairly capable college quarterback and him being paired with Lane Kiffin, I think he would be next in line. But I don't have a whole lot of faith in Walker Howard nor Jackson Dart to wrestle that job away from him. But I have been wrong before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's obviously that's the that's the the biggest quarterback competition in all, all across For the sure. SEC down there in Oxford and, and Lane, Triff, Lane Kiffin's track record. Like you said, it's hard to project who they're going to be starting <laughs> – anywhere it seems like receiver. every year we have this debate don't we it was either john Luis plumley or matt corral and then like okay is it going to be luke altmeyer is it going to be jackson dart and now here we are third straight year quarterback <laughs> battle, or three out of four years quarterback battle so uh nothing new down there but you know create uh what, what's the uh old saying um conflict brings about the best results or something like that i don't know iron I'm sharpens iron with, all that garbage yeah iron sharpens <laughs> iron that, that that bs and that all that coach speak so uh you know i'm sure juice kiffin's all about that type of stuff so we haven't even got to Joe Milton yet. Is he next on your list? Yes, Joe Milton is next on my list. You know, just because of areas that we talked about, um, arm strength is there, area of opportunities there with the scheme and his weapons. It's just down-to-down accuracy. Can you refine yourself a little bit? Can you show that you can do things when things break down, not throw the ball in the harm's way, and still your, give your guy an opportunity to catch the ball? Because, you know, when, when he was coming out of Michigan, you know, his first year, early 2021, one of the things that really did stand out is like when his base was just altered, he was just a complete mess. And so if he's not just standing from the pocket and he's forced to be flushed right or left, which can happen when you, when you execute one man routes, Mike, that one man isn't open where you're going to go with the ball. You got to have to make something happen. Of course, Hendon Hooker was pretty good at that. I still need to see a little bit of that ability from Joe Milton moving forward, but high end is there high end. I mean, I think for impact, I would, I wouldn't be inclined to have him as a 94 type of rating, depending on how the how spring ball goes, if he shows to be a little bit more refined. I know it's a glorified practice, but still, it's the only glimpses we have from uh, playing against a depleted Clemson secondary and before you're playing Poop State in week one. <laughs> that's so that's I mean, Virgi- it's like, <laughs> this year it's Virginia. I don't know if you're if you're considering them Poop State, but hell, the way uh, they, the way they played last year, maybe. Yeah, like, dude, they, they they had two dynamo receivers, one of the more accomplished passers in Brennan Armstrong. They soured his reputation. I thought he was going to be like a left-handed Kyle Trask, very similar style of play, very prolific, uh, no, not afraid to throw the ball downfield. You got uh, Wicks and Deontay Thornton, a former uh, uh, 
uh, Mississippi State or SEC here, who is 6'5 and a massive catch radius. And, and, and you bring in a stale offense that didn't work when you had a premier talent at Clemson, or you needed a Trevor Lawrence or a uh, a dynamic receiver like T. Higgins to make the most of a matchup-oriented style of play. Of course it wasn't going to work. So, um, I yeah, I just don't really have that much respect for Virginia as a program right now, even though, you know, Poop State <laughs> might have been a little bit too far, but still, like, I, I just think that's going to be an easy win for Tennessee, depending based on where things are right now. Now, again, the list I have outdated, perhaps, but uh, the one I'm looking off here has got Jalen Milrow next on the list. Uh, what is he number nine on your list, and why not Ty Simpson? What, what's your thoughts there? Um, it's just because, yeah, he had a little bit more reps than Ty Simpson's last year. Of course, bringing in Tommy Reese, it seems like, yeah, Ty Simpson's probably going to be the guy. They have a pass together. Um, if they're going to go to a more classic Nick Saban offense, more under center, you know, they, they still are multiple. They still use 12 personnel a whole lot. But you know what? I was not shy sharing the fact Alabama could not run the ball on first down each of the last two years with Bill O'Brien in charge. And one of the primary factors, they sucked at counter, Mike. Classic gap scheme, trapper, rapper, two side pullers, um, success rate in the 20s. Each of the last two years on first down. I mean, the best third down offenses are offenses that avoid third downs the best. And that simply was not Alabama the last two years. If it wasn't for Bryce Young's magician skills, I don't know where they would be. Certainly a lot more frustrated as a program based on their trajectory, not being playing, you know, not playing for a national championship or not winning a national championship either the last two years. Crazy standard, I know, but that's that's the standard they built for themselves. So I still think that Jalen Milrow, just because of his experience, might have the inside job, but of course it is going to be a total crapshoot. All bets are off once the spring ball starts and we can see you know, who's going to start getting more reps with the ones, what the offense is actually going to look like, if there's going to be any type of carryover at all, or if it's going to try and resemble a little bit more what Notre Dame was doing the last couple of years. Yeah, and that's what I hear about Tommy Reese as well. I mean, they, they want to get back to, to the running game. They want to get away from hero ball where – Yes, I mean, they've had some of the best quarterbacks in, in recent SEC history, but you can't always rely on that. And, and hell, I mean, Bryce Young may be the no, number one pick, and again, you lost multiple games with him. So uh, is that kind of what you're hearing behind the scenes as well? I mean, they, they want to get back to uh, – and, and not only that, but it will help the defense out, um, which which certainly seems to be working well in Athens. I mean, that's what I surmise from the situation for sure. You know, I'm not thinking they're going to all of a sudden try and rip off Heupel's offense with Tommy Reese in charge <laughs> and go a completely other uh, way, even though that would be really fun. If Hyper's, if, if Saban's like, oh, so you want this to be football now? All right, we're, we're going to be running the super spread now with our athletes. But no, yeah, I, I definitely think it's going to be um, kind of a more slower pace. Not that the, you know Alabama ran out of breakneck speed by any means under Bill O'Brien, but I definitely think that there's going to be a more emphasis on being better at those gap schemes, establishing the run, having more balance, and not having to lean on empty pass formations. Even though, don't get me wrong, I love the shock two-lane concept. I love what they were doing with trails. They were fantastic at it, don't get me wrong. But, same time, I think Alabama is Alabama when it can impose its will, kind of like Georgia was this past season. You know, Georgia did things, fun things in the past game, but they were still able to run counter, toss, duo, inside zones, at will. I mean, in fact, um, Georgia's offense was like the only instance I had the last three since I've been charting SEC offenses to have um, all seven of their most repped pass concepts and five of their most repped six run concepts 
finished with at least a success rate of 50%. So think about that. The things that they were running the most worked over half of the time. That's a great uh, recipe for success. And I can't tell you how difficult that is. Alabama 2020 didn't do it. Joe Burrow and them boys didn't do it. So gosh darn, Todd Mocking having that type of ability to stretch defenses with the run pass, again, with the versatility, that is just something that has been lacking from from Tuscaloosa's offense the last couple of years. It's been a lot more zone-oriented because they haven't been able to pull people, but pulling people is has a lot – okay – so gap schemes, they kind of invite more cushion. Obviously, you're not trying to reach and seal. So on average, you will have a lower rush yard before contact average, but they have a higher degree of like perfect block rate. So when that block rate does hit, they have a better rate for going more yards. So you got to lean into avenues that open up explosive gains because while the pass game has kind of been middling in that respect, you have to maintain your identity as a physical. We can get 10 yards when you're gassed in the second quarter and really put this game away type of uh, approach. Now, so who do you have number 10 rounding out your list? Rounding out my list, uh, I guess it would be Graham Mertz. I'm not the biggest fan of Graham Mertz. Um, I like his anticipation skills. Don't get me wrong. It's just for someone who's built as a strong arm quarterback, I would have liked to see. I would have liked to have seen at least one pass attempt beyond 35 yards downfield in a five-game sample. Uh, for instance, someone like Devin Leary had 20. So, uh, yeah, not a whole lot of uh, verticality from him. He kind of leaves the ball inside a little bit too much on outbreakers, but. It's the type of thing where Florida really knows who they were last year, and they were a completely different offense when they were using play action. You can go look on secstatcat.com, Anthony Richardson splits. He was basically one of the most um, effective and efficient, uh, potent passers using play action. You strip that away, and you look at his passing, his dropbacks without that stuff, he was damn near one of the worst in the conference. His uncatchable pass rate was worse than Robbie Ashford, which is, uh, yeah, not the the company you like to keep when you're trying to be a first-round pick or when you're put in the discussion of being the next Josh Allen. So I think play action is going to be his best friend. I think he's going to be at least a serviceable, serviceable passer. Um, and at least he's a little bit more preferable with his experience, with his skill set, than kind of the guys who are rounding out the rest of the conference, you know, Connor Wegman, he's also in the discussion, you know, uh, bringing in <laughs> Bobby Petrino it certainly raised my eyebrows. I'm not going to comment on whether it was a good or a bad hire. I'm just going to say it was definitely interesting, and I like interesting. So with his tutelage, it definitely does see what can they do, especially bringing back Nia Smith, who I mentioned earlier, who I have as wide receiver one just because of his all-encompassing gang, uh, operating from the backfield, from the slot, as a return man, and what he can kind of be as a gadget player. But um, he was a little bit... I know he's 18 years old, 19 years old, but he just looked like a guy who needed yak stuff. He targeted the middle of the field. He was picking on linebackers to bring in a comparison for style of play, not for what style of pass they are. But think of Jimmy Garoppolo. A lot of the criticism with him was that he only throws to the middle of the field. He's afraid to throw outside the numbers. And when you look at his pass chart, it really does um, – th this shortcoming really is accentuated. His accuracy just falls off a cliff the longer he has to throw the ball. And if you can't get the ball to your one-on-one -on -one matchups outside of the numbers and you can keep that defense kind of guessing where the ball is going to go, I just don't like where things are going to go for him. But still, he's young. He's developing. I'm not saying he's a lost cause by any means. It's just at this point in time, I have him on the outside looking in. 
It doesn't mean that he can't live up to his potential. It doesn't mean that his weapons can really make him look better or he can be one of the few Texas A&M passers to be one of the more explosive ones in the conference because, you know, only Kentucky and Vanderbilt have less explosive passes than Texas A&M the last three years within the SEC. You got to fix that style, and it's not going to be through a rinky-dink type of passer. So, like a lot of the other guys, we got to see if he can throw the ball downfield, not throw the ball in the harm's way, and really uh, round out where his pass sprays go. I, uh, I'm going to go back to Graham Mertz real quick. Were you surprised mm-hmm. that Billy Napier went in that direction? Do you think they, sh- they should have went somewhere else? Uh, or, or does he kind of fit that play-action style that uh, Napier loves to do? Well, I mean, I think he's a fit. I mean, I don't think he was, like, option one by any means. Like, I don't think anyone had him as option one in the transfer portal. But with how things kind of progressed in a very short amount of time, I don't think it was, uh, you know, all right, we'll get him and now problem solved. I think it's like, we get him and maybe we can see what else comes up later down the line. And if we have him here, look, we at least give him a head start over the other guy so we at least have some type of uh, a battle. Because, look, Jack Miller, what he showed in the bowl game, long-term option, no, he's not going to be fighting for that job. So it would behoove them to probably bring in somebody else. But, look, as things stand, he should be at least an average bar none passer that can keep you in ball games, manage that offense, let – those two talented running backs you have in Montreal Johnson and Etienne, the young Etienne, um, really let them shine. And then, you know, because that's kind of how he was at Wisconsin, right? He was the secondary aspect. And for better or worse, yeah, he was not good when behind the chains or when his the run game didn't facilitate things for him. But you have to think with how all, oh, I'm sorry, with how Florida is revamping that offensive line and how they have really talented ball carriers that he's going to be his best self off play action. Now let's get to the running backs. I I don't want to take up all your day here, so let's just do top five. But uh, I think right at the top of the list, we got a battle that uh, it, neither one of these fan bases, and, and nor should they, but they're, neither one's going to see that their guy is not better. And, of course, I'm talking right. Quinshaw Judkins at Ole Miss, Rocket Sanders at Arkansas, two of the best players uh, in all the country, regardless of position. How do you see that playing out? Who do you give uh, probably a minimal edge to? Oh, no, I give a a solid edge to Judkins. He's younger. He runs harder. He has really good stable metrics, as I like to say. So that's yards after contact average, broken tackle rate, and um, adjusted gumption. So that's how many times are you hit in the backfield? And of those times, how many times did you turn that into a positive game? You're, You're erasing losses. Not every running back is cut out for that. Not every running back is... Um, suited for running through contact or making guys miss because that's the name of the game, right? It's blocking and tackling. How can you use that to your numbers advantage? Um, Everyone can run to um, open space. And you know what? Raheem Sanders absolutely can run to open space. No SEC pass, no SEC rusher had a higher degree of runs towards um, initial contact of eight yards or more than him. So think about that. Um, Basically, 45% of his yards came on those types of carry that's an immense chunk consider someone like chris rodriguez where it's like 13 percent, where he's having to fight in a phone booth every single carry that was not Raheem sanders but because how junkins was able to be the best of both worlds you know he had the home run ability he had the ability to make guys miss he had the ability to win the edge he had the ability to hit inside and be more consistent and not just be uh, his best self running outside zone reads. I gave him the edge. Of course, he is younger. But yeah, Raheem Sanders, go look at his stat sheet. You're not going to find too many things to complain about, even though 
I could mention, yeah, he could have a little bit of a drop-off because they're missing guys up front. And with that high degree of rush yards before contact, padding his rushing numbers, if that shrinks a little bit and his, you know, his tackle breaking and his yards after contact kind of stays in the above average zone, well, yeah, he's going to see a, re a reduction increase. So that's something to monitor moving forward. But there's no doubt in my mind that is my one-two SEC running back pair heading into this season. And then uh, number three, this is where the debate starts. I have Jarquez Hunter. You know, he was arguably the more exciting Auburn ball carrier each of the last two seasons. And when you look at stable metrics, well, he was on par with Tank Bixby in yards after contact and tackle breaking. So that's one thing where, okay, no matter how bad or how mid or how, you know, if they actually take a step up front, because that's been one of the major shortcomings with Auburn's offense the last couple of years has been mm, disappointing line play, getting more daylight for their ball carriers to be their best self. Because look, there are plenty of examples of him winning tosses and winning foot races, making guys miss on the inside. And with, um, the run-oriented attack under Hugh Freeze and Robbie Ashford, who is not a passer, they're going to have to lean on the run game. He seems to see an immense uptick in volume. But it's just a matter of how much Brian Beatty, who's further down the list, is going to take a little bit of that share away from him. He's the new guy coming from the transfer portal, who he himself was one of the top guys in the nation last year in yards per carry and explosive run rate. So talk about a home run threat. It's just a matter of what, how much of the down-to-down -down usage is he going to get. Is it going to be a true 50-50 split? As of right now, I think he's going to be the premier back. I think he's going to be the, the you know, see the lion's share of the carries and really be their focal point of the offense, which is why I gave him uh, running back number three within the SEC. And then we go down to Tuscaloosa on the other side of Alabama, Chase McClellan. Chase McClellan, when he was uh, filling in for Gibbs, I think he has the size and um, the tackle-breaking ability to help this transition period between the Tommy Reese and the Bill O'Brien attack. You know, it still remains to be seen, like we were talking about, if it's still going to be some more zones or if they're going to try and emphasize gap skins again and make that an emphasis. But with whichever approach, he was pretty good as a ball carrier last year, and he should absolutely help Alabama find its footing offensively. Hmm. So safe to say, with the game on the line, going up against Alabama, Lane Kiffin, get Junkins on the damn field. What are we doing here? Oh, for sure. I mean, why wouldn't you? Well, he didn't. I mean, That's the problem. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Like, Zach Evans and, and Judkins, I mean, like, I get that there's some loyalty there. Or, like, we don't know if Judkins had, like, a stinger or something. Oh, yeah. no, we don't know. But, Use like, him as a decoy. I, yeah. Use him as a decoy. And I can't. I mean, if there was any offense to do that, it is his. But speaking of like uh, the impact rating, so I put away 32 people at any given week, you know, when I think they have first round talent, whether it is through ability or if it is through production. I have Quinton Judkins as the SEC's uh, only other five star besides Brock Bowers. So that should speak how oh. highly I think of him at this point in time at uh, number 12 in all of college football. Yeah, and apparently. Behind the scenes, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the rumblings as well. He was essentially the hottest free agent that wasn't a free agent mm -hmm. in college football. So that I mean that that speaks. Well, what to about your point. Drake May? <laughs> yeah. And that big old pay raise. I mean, gosh, bless man. That's the thing. Like, I don't know what's true anymore. Like, I have to, I have to treat just because the nature of my job as everything is true, and I have to get a grade read ready for everybody <laughs> and be ready to justify it and be ready to turn around to our tech team to have it up in five minutes. So yeah. Um, there are a number of guys like that on my radar, but yeah, Judkins, there's no doubt in my mind. 
Um, if it wasn't, and there's still a name from the Big Ten who may or may not transfer, who I have a grade on, but without Ooh. him, I mean, even with him in consideration, who I'm not naming, I would absolutely say Judkins would be the best running back to enter the portal if that did happen. Mm. But yeah, I, I'm just, I'm very, very high on this young man. I mean, it's like Josh Jacobs. When's the last time a three-star came out of nowhere and just got your attention like this when there's like five stars around or five five and four stars surrounding him throughout the conference. And he's the one driving the conversation. Like he just seems like a difference maker and a, a, tr a true definition of the term gem. Right. Well, Clark, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time breaking this all down for me again. Follow Clark SEC underscore stat cat. You can find a, a link to that in the show notes before you go, Clark, can you tell everybody what's the best way to find all your work? Best way is to go to the website. I know I'm a little bit slow uh, updating the content with my other responsibilities right now, but secstatcat.com, um, all of the information's up to date. So even though if I'm not putting out articles or videos on that platform, you can still look at someone's pass chart. You can isolate it down to the route. You can just see if someone wants to throw curls where they were going. You can see stuff with play action and filter things out just to show screens and RPOs if you're inclined to see how many times someone was hit behind the line of scrimmage. The filters and the applications are endless. It's meant to be user-friendly where you can become a little bit more uh, informed on your favorite teams, on your operations, things you can't find necessarily in the traditional box score. You know, like yards after contact, can't find that anywhere. Success rate, can't find that. So it's just a way and a resource for casual fans. I'm also in the process, like I mentioned a few times, in doing my SEC scheme reviews. So after many, many years of dragging my feet, I'm trying to do a YouTube page where I can do a little bit more scheme telestrations. So I'm going to rope all the common threads together. So all top six runs, top seven passes, interesting wrinkles that gain big plays, going to put them all in a nice package together for each SEC team and hopefully have that available sometime this spring. Like I mentioned, I'm in the middle of doing Georgia's right now. But again, it's just a fantastic resource if you're trying to learn a little bit more about the game, the scheme, how people are utilized, and just become a little bit more informed than just, oh, this guy is good. You know, just give you a little bit more ammunition. Of course, uh, with it being debate season and draft season, um, you got to like to have a lot of ammunition in terms of statistics, in terms of metrics, and in terms of being able to win arguments that way. Yeah, man, that you got me excited just hearing all that. So I can't wait. When that comes out, we'll be sure to to push that to our audience. Thank you, Clark. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I, I think the audience will really love this information. I hope so too, Mike. You have a great one. It was always a pleasure. All right, so just want to say thanks again, Clark, for joining the show. And, man, that guy goes a million miles per hour, doesn't he? But uh, very, very <laughs> insightful, informative outstanding interview this is the content we need during the off season and i just hope all y'all got as much info out of that as i did with his unique insight into sec football but hey that's going to do it for this week's shows we got some more guests lined up for next week and like i keep alluding to spring football just around the corner so it won't be long we're going to have tons of nuggets and hopefully uh you know no one gets injured and We'll have player interviews, coaches interviews. We're going to be loaded up here, finish the month strong, and heading into spring. Cannot wait. I do appreciate each and every one of you for hanging out during the off-season times. Hopefully, we're making it a little bit more bearable to get through this off-season. But that's going to do it for this episode of the show. We'll catch you on the next one.